The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 down through verse number 4. Our D6 theme for the week is the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the matchless Christ. And I want to try to speak on that subject. As a matter of fact, of boy, there, there's so much to say on that subject. It's really difficult, really hard to get it down into one message. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, as I've been preparing for this particular message, I just had so much, and so I just printed off what I had. And I had 21 pages of notes. Now, you've got to understand, my notes are not written out verbatim. It's just a thought, and then I expound on it, and a thought, and then I expound on it, and then a thought, and then I expound on it. When I got done writing down all the thoughts, there were 21 pages. I printed it off Friday, and I told Donette, I said, here's my sermon. 21 pages of thoughts that I would like to share dealing with Scripture pertaining to the preeminence of Christ. Well, as you well know, there's no way in the world I can get through 21 pages. We'd be here for probably 21 days if I did that. So all weekend long, I've been just whittling this thing away and whittling it away. And until late last evening, I finally just whittled it down uh, as much as I thought I could. And I still get the thought and the concept of what it is that we are talking about. In our culture today, not a whole lot being said about the preeminence of Christ. And I don't know, maybe you, uh, maybe the term or the, the doctrine of the preeminency of Christ, maybe it's something you're not familiar with. Uh, whenever you talk about the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, what is it that we're really talking about when we use those terms? We're talking about Him being in complete authority, Him being in complete control, Him having the preeminence or the first place. It, it, it's, a, it's a place of status that Christ has not only in our life, not only in our salvation, not only in our church, not only in our families, not only in our finances, not only in our careers, but everything crosses to have the preeminence. He is to have the authority. He's the one that we look to for direction. He's the one that we look to for decision-making because you must understand something. Once you accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are no longer your own. You have been purchased. You have been bought. You have been redeemed. You now should live your life under the Lordship of Jesus. Cody and Kelly, good to see you guys. I just saw you there up from Arkansas and just moved in here, got orders and... Good to have you guys back. I just saw you. I should have done that earlier, but I just got a glimpse. Good to see you. Christ should have the preeminence in our life, the lordship in our life. He should be in first place. I've heard preachers make this statement. I think it's very false. It's not accurate. I understand their thought process, and I understand what it is they're trying to achieve. When they make this statement. A lot of times whenever you hear teaching or instruction on the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, you'll hear pastors or teachers say something like this. Will you just make Christ supreme in your life? You'll hear them say something. Will you just make Christ supreme in your family? Will you just make Christ preeminent? In your home and in your family and your finances. Now I understand what they're trying to say whenever they say that. But theologically and doctrinally that is incorrect. You see, you can't make Christ preeminent. He already is preeminent. You can't make Christ supreme. He already is supreme. Hello? Let that settle in. You see, we've, we, we have really, we're living in an age, we're living in a culture, we're living in a society where we have this consumer mentality. And unfortunately, we bring that into our spiritual life. We bring that into our world. And we pick and choose off the buffet bar of life and the buffet bar of spirituality and the buffet bar of the Bible and the buffet bar of theology. We pick and choose what we would like to have. 
Now, when I go to a buffet, there's kind of one section that I really look over pretty well. It's the cookies. I mean, I love to go to a buffet and look at the cookies. And when I look at the cookies, there is a particular type of cookie that I'm looking for. Now, I don't care if it's peanut butter. I don't care if it's chocolate chip. I don't care if it's a sugar cookie. But what I'm looking for in my cookie is I want it crunchy. I like them all if they're crunchy. I mean, I want a cookie that when I bite it, it's going to pop a little bit. And when I chew, it's just going to just explode in my mouth. That's what I like. I just like a brittle cookie. Now, if they're chewy or about halfway, I'll leave them. But you see, a lot of times we bring that into our doctrine. We bring that into our theology. We bring that mentality into our churches, into our families, into our finances, into our lives. And we pick and choose what we personally like. And all the time we're thinking that we're making Christ Lord or Supreme. Or preeminent in our life. And understand, you don't make him any of those. He already is. So the question is, will you allow him to have the preeminence in your life? Will you allow him to have supreme authority in your life? All this week, we're going to be studying on the matchless Christ. We're going to be studying the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Our goal this week is to recognize Jesus Christ as the supreme revelation of God. And as we study together this week, this is what we're focusing on. We want to get to the place where we recognize that Jesus... The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and following, down through verse number 11, that this man Jesus has a name above all names. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is what? Supreme. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is supreme. Now, one day you're going you're gonna to admit that. And one day you're going to bow to that doctrine. I want to encourage you to submit to that today. To allow Christ to be the Lord of your life, to allow Him to be preeminent in every single area of your life. And oh, there's so much I, more I could, I, want, I could say about this, about some ways that we can test ourselves to see if He is preeminent. In other words, let me give you one right here. Do we really believe that Jesus is the Lord of our finances? Do we really believe... Now, it's just one area. We could cover a lot of them. But I want to finger around in this one. I heard someone say at our national convention, if you don't meddle a little bit, you ain't preaching real good. So let me meddle a little bit right here. If we really believe that Jesus is the Lord of our finances, that He, we allow Him to be preeminent in our finances, then we're really not going to worry about getting the bills paid. Now, we're going to be good stewards, but we're not going to spend a lot, tremendous amount of time worrying and fretting. And we won't have any problem whatsoever paying our tithe and giving of our offering. We won't have any problem whatsoever just walking by and throwing an extra dollar or two in the tabernacle offering to help pay. Why? Because Christ is preeminent. And He's promised us, I will supply and meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory. Just allow Him to have the preeminence in that particular area. In your home. In your life. In your career. With your family. With your church. Oh, there's so many different areas. But this week in our fusion literature, we're going to look at several fusion facts. Five of those we're going to be studying. Tomorrow you're going to be studying that only those who have Jesus really have eternal life. Now we're narrowing it down to one person. We're narrowing it down to one God. We're narrowing it down to one deity. We're narrowing it down to one highway, one road. We're narrowing it down to one way that we can have salvation. And that is only... When we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You're going to study that tomorrow.
Tuesday, you're going to be studying how the matchless cross deserves our unmatched devotion. The matchless cross deserves our unmatched devotion. He deserves everything you can give Him and everything you have and every ounce of your time and effort and energy. He deserves all of it. Hello? Wednesday, we're going to study together how Jesus came that we might have eternal life. Thursday, we're going to study how just pretending to know God will not make it so. And then Friday, we're going to study together how the matchless cross has endless resources. And guys, I... You know, I, I, ne- I whittled this thing down in my notes. I, I'm probably going to have to whittle it more as I'm speaking. But I want you to get a hold of this. This theme for a child of God, for a Christian, will completely revolutionize your thought process and completely, radically transform your life. When you allow Christ to have preeminence in your life, it'll change everything about you. It'll change your thought process. It'll change your decision making. It'll change, it'll change the way you treat each other. It'll change the way you serve in the church. It, it'll change the way you appreciate things. When you place Him and allow Him to be the supreme God in your life. Why is it important to preach on the supremacy of Christ? And this is a whole sermon that I worked out and I had to whittle it down to a thought or two to share with you. Why is it even important to preach on the supremacy of Christ? Here's why. We live in an age, and I'm looking over here to these college guys and gals and these college guys and some of these teenagers and youth. You live in an age, and we all live in that age, where we are bombarded with no one seemingly wanting to feel inferior. Hello? We do everything. And I've heard some teachers in our church share with me, and I don't know if it ever became an official rule, but in a class or a course that some teachers had to take for credits and different things, I heard a particular teacher say, You know what? They do not want us to use a red ink pen when grading papers because it hurts the self-esteem of a child when we give them back a paper that is marked up with red ink. Well, when I was going through school, I thought every teacher just used a red ink pen and marked up everybody's paper because mine were always marked up. But they were worried and concerned about hurting the self-esteem of a child or making one feel inferior. You know what that has led to? That's led to a never-ending onslaught from the media, get this now, about the need to be tolerant of differences for the sake of harmony and goodwill. Now, stay with me. We're living in an age where everybody just wants you to be tolerant of everything, and every religion, and every thought, and every action. We're all different. There is no absolute truth. Matter of fact, George Barna did a research, did some research, and it showed this. 67% of Americans, 67% of Americans do not think there's any such thing as absolute truth. Nearly 7 out of 10 individuals that you come in contact with doesn't believe in absolute truth. In other words, there is no definitive right or wrong. Everything is a medium gray. And it reminds me of the last book in the book of Judges, in the last chapter, in the last verse, where it says that everyone did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. Why? Because God wasn't supreme in their life. You know what? We're living in a world. We're living in a country. We're living in America. We're living in a state. We're living in a county. We're living in communities. That right outside our front door, you can cross the street. And you're running to people that do not believe. That do not believe in absolute truth. And you know what that culture is? You know what that feeds to? Actually, here's another statistic by Barnum. 67% of Americans 
Don't believe in absolute truth. Get this one. He went inside the church and went into conservative, theologically conservative movements and groups and pulled those individuals in those churches and asked them about absolute truth. Do you realize that 53% of Christians sitting in a conservative theological church do not believe in absolute truth. Half of the people sitting in churches do not believe in absolute truth. Now guys, I tell you what, I got a problem with that. I mean, because there is absolute truth. And it's found in the Word of God. In this book called the Bible, it's filled with rots and wrongs. It's filled with, if you do this, you're going to face consequences for that. It's filled with, thou shalt not, and thou can do. It's filled with absolute truth. But we've gotten to the place in our culture, in our society today, that we don't believe in the supremacy of Christ. We don't believe in the preeminence of Christ. Matter of fact, we don't even believe that Jesus is the only way, only way to heaven. We think there are many roads to heaven. You know, back in the in the age of, of Rome and, you know, all the roads used to lead to Rome. And people bring that into their theology and say, oh, you know, just be good. Just be a good person. Just be sincere in whatever you believe in. Just search for truth. You'll find it. Just this kind of be, belief. And, and, and eventually we'll all get to heaven. Well, I don't really want a problem with that. That's nowhere in Scripture. There's only one way to heaven, folks. And there are not, listen... There are not many different religious avenues that you can take to get to heaven. They don't all lead to heaven. I'm talking about the preeminence of Christ. There is one God. There is one Creator. There is one Redeemer. There is one Savior. There is one Jesus. And that Jesus, which is the Son of God, said... No way you'll get to heaven except through me. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's not just me talking. That's Jesus talking. John 14, 6. The way, the truth, the life. What has all this led to? It's led to a doctrine or a religion or a thought process of pluralism. Now, what is pluralism? Pluralism is individuals that just believe there's multiple ways of finding truth. There's multiple gods out there. And we can find truth by experiencing... Listen, they don't look to the Scripture for divine truth. They don't look to Scripture for divine authority. They look to their human experiences. And by the way, guys, and especially you ladies, just turn Oprah off. Do I need to say that again? And somebody needs to say amen and stand with me. Don't, don't sit there like a coward. If you, if, you, if you agree with me, you let me hear you. Somebody needs to turn Oprah off. Hello? Do I need to say that again? Somebody needs to turn Oprah, say it with me, off. You know why? Because she's part of this movement. There is no absolute truth. There is no one way. There is no authority of Scripture. There really is no preeminent Christ. There is no supremacy of Christ. There is no matchless Christ. We can all find truth by our human experience. So therefore we embrace the Hinduism. Therefore we embrace the Buddhism. Therefore we embrace the other isms and schisms that are out there in the world today. Why? Because through our human experience... Are you tracking with me today? It's been a couple weeks since I preached to you, so you're getting a boatload today, okay? We get our truth now through human experience. So I'm going to go out here and I'm going to experience something. And I'll discern if it's truthful. And I'll discern if I'm going to live my life by it. The problem is that thought process most likely will lead you away from heaven. It will not lead you to 
truth. You see, pluralism, it fits well in this new age thinking. It makes room for all types of political and ethnic and cultural differences, both in society and in the church. Oh, wow. Oh, that's just my way of introduction. How are you going to deal with that thought process? How how are we going to deal with living in a culture, living in a society, living in a world where no one wants to feel inferior? We need to be tolerant of everybody and everything and every belief system. We need to embrace all religions and and we need to come together ecumenically and, and just serve together and worship together. But after all, God is a God of love and He loves us all. Now, God is a God of love, but He's also a God of wrath. You don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. Man, that, that book ought to scare you to death. Not if you're a child of God, because you get taken out in the first part of it. You don't even experience the whole middle part of the book. Actually, two-thirds of the book, you're not even experiencing that. You're with the Lord. Then we come back in the end triumphantly. But if you're not a believer, that ought to make you worrisome. Guys, listen. There's only one supreme God. And there's only one way to heaven. And that's through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to that. Let that settle. And I don't care what so-and-so says on the job. And I don't care what family member may be in some other time. Listen, I didn't say there's only one denomination going to heaven. Hello? A free will Baptists have a hard time getting along with free will Baptists. I can't imagine spending eternity in heaven. There ain't that many of us anyway. Southern Baptist, same way. Methodist, same way. Listen, I'm not talking about denominations. There's many different denominations that preach that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's some other issues that we separate on that's pretty much kind of here on earth. But mainly, those, those mainstream denominations, I'm not talking about denominations. I'm not talking about Baptist. I'm talking about Jesus. He needs to be preeminent in your life. Now, that's my introduction. And I cut a lot of that out. But I want you to go to the book of Colossians. Colossians. If there is any chapter in the entire New Testament that deals primarily with the preeminence of of Christ and the doctrine of Jesus Christ, it would have to be the book of Colossians and primarily chapter number 1. Listen, guys, we have got to come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ has a name above all names. That he reigns from on high before we can properly respond to this pluralistic society that we live in. Before we can properly respond to is there absolute truth or not. And all this is kind of under the umbrella of the supremacy of Christ. I want you to look in verses. Let's just look and see who Paul is writing to. Look at verse 1. Colossians 1 verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Now, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. So, therefore, the rest of this book you can take and apply it to your own life because he's writing this to you. And it's as powerful today and as truthful today and as relevant today as it was in the day that he wrote it. So, let's look at what he says. In order some great stuff, you going down through there in verse number 3. He says, we thank God for you. We pray for you, verse 4, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a testimony to these believers. Word had gotten back about their great faith in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is anybody, can anybody give a testimony of your faith in Christ? Or are you kind of floating around out there like a chameleon? you kind of trying to identify with every people group that you kind of come in contact with. Listen, don't be ashamed of Christ. He said, matter of fact, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before your peers, before men, I'll be ashamed of you when you stand before my Father. There's nothing to be ashamed about. And in our culture, culture, in our society, our world today, Christians are the group that's just being dogged. We're the ones that are being beat down. We're the ones that are being, trying to be pushed under the rug. But you know what? That's, that's been taking place since the first century church. So don't let that wear you out. Matter of fact, a little persecution in your life is going to help you be a stronger believer. And it's going to make the church stronger. And it's going to spread the gospel more and more. Sometimes I think we may have it too easy as a child of God. Hello? Stay with me here. 
Say amen or oh me, but talk back to me a little bit, if you will. It makes it all flow a little bit better, okay? He said, I've heard of your faith. He said, I've also heard of your love, in verse 4, your love for all the saints. I've heard how you love each other. I've heard about your faith in Christ. I've heard about how you love each other. What a tremendous witness. What a tremendous testimony for this church. Man, that church loves each other. And may it be said of Victory Church, I told Matt this morning, before he got up there to sing, he told me how nervous he was. I said, Matt, we love you. Matt, you're, you're among friends. You're among people that love you. We're not out there being critical. We're encouraging you. Get up there and sing. And I thought he did a great job. But what an awesome testimony to be in a church family and everybody say, hey, that church, they love each other. And may that be said of Victory Church. May we learn to love each other. And guys, listen, we've got our differences and we've got our different personalities. We come from all walks of life, but we do have some common ground. We believe in one Lord. We believe in one way to heaven. We believe in Jesus Christ. We experience that salvation together. We believe in one baptism. We believe in collectively coming together as a body of believers. Hello? They loved each other, the scripture says. And then he says, you've already heard about the hope. The hope and the message of truth. Message of what, Paul? This message of truth. Paul says, you've heard about the hope that is in this message of truth. There's a whole other sermon. Guys, you're looking for hope today? You're not finding it with Oprah or any other liberal theologian out there. And I don't even call her. She, she claims to be a theologian, though. You know that, don't you? And she has started a, dom- a denomination. And she has started a movement. You can go on her websites and do the Oprah Bible studies and get indoctrinated by her. You know, if it wasn't so... If it wasn't so blatantly stupid, it'd be funny, but it's true. I mean, I've went there and visited the site, and I'm reading this baloney. Paul says, there's hope. I didn't come here with the intent of slamming that, but that's part of the junk we're fighting whenever we talk about the preeminence of Christ. Paul said, you've heard about this hope that you find in the gospel of truth. Oh, I've got to get it. Let's, let's hurry. Let's get over to verse number 13. Look what he says. In this particular passage, verse 13 down through verse number 20. In this particular passage, Paul writes to prove the preeminence of Christ. And he did so with four different arguments. And I'm not going to have time to expound them all, but I do want you to jot these down. I want you to take out your sermon notes, if you would, please. If you would notice on the very back of your bulletin, there's just lines. And the reason being, because when this was being published, I had 21 pages of notes, and I didn't know where I was going to settle. But I got a few things I want you to jot down. And then you can take this and expound on it, and you can study it, and you can get a hold of it. But I want you to jot this down first of all. Sorry about that, guys. That, uh, that computer's giving me a problem. Anyway, here's what I want you to see, number one, as we look at some of these arguments. I want you to see that Jesus Christ is preeminent in salvation, that Christ is the Savior, in verse 13 down through verse number 14. Look, if you will, in verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me read this to you. This is something I pinned down. The false teachers in Colossae, like the false teachers of our day, they would not deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him by giving him prominence and not preeminence. Guys, that's exactly what's taking place in our day. The false teachers and theologians out there, they're not, they're not telling you that Jesus wasn't an important individual. They give him a place of prominence. And guys, if that's all you're giving Jesus, then you're falling way short of what he wants out of your life. He doesn't just want to be an important person in your life. He doesn't want to have the prominence in your life. He wants to be preeminent in your life. And here Paul is trying to show us that Christ Jesus is preeminent in our salvation. Look what he says in verse number 13. It says that he rescued us. Guys, do you realize that man's greatest problem is a sin problem? The greatest problem that we have in the world is a sin problem. And the greatest need that every man, boy, girl, lady, whoever's been born, the greatest need that you have 
is a Savior and salvation. And if you're sitting here today and you don't think you need a Savior, and you don't think you need to experience salvation, then I promise you, honey, you're ignorant in at least two areas. Number one, you're ignorant in the holiness of God. And secondly, you're ignorant in the depravity of man. Guys, we are sinful creatures. Every one of us. And the greatest need that we have, including myself, is a Savior. And the Bible says that Christ is preeminent because He has rescued us. Now notice, it says that He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Now guys, listen, we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We needed a Savior. We needed someone to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And that's what Jesus did. Second thing you see in 13b, not only did He rescue us, but He transferred us. Get a hold of this one. Not only did He rescue us, but He transferred us. The word transferred in the original language has to do with the deportation of a population from one country to another. As a matter of fact, you go back and you study in history that Antiochus the Great transported at least 20,000 Jews from Babylon to Colossae. So whenever Paul used this term about how Christ Jesus has transferred us. The King James says, translated us. It's talking about how he's moved us from one place to another. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about because many of them had been transferred. They had been translated. They had been deported, so to speak. And I want you to notice where we've been transferred to. The Bible says that Christ Jesus has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. You see, He didn't just relieve us or, or, or redeem us and leave us just to wander around aimlessly. He's moving us somewhere. He's moving us into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. He also redeemed us. In verse number 14, it says, in whom we have redemption. The word means to, to release a prisoner by payment or by a ransom. And guys, we have been redeemed through the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our redemption. And then it says that He has forgiven us. The forgiveness of sins. Just means that He's canceled a debt. He's forgiven us. So we see that Christ is preeminent in salvation because He's rescued us. He's transferred us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. Secondly, Christ is preeminent in the creation because Christ is the creator. And we see that in verse 15 and down through verse number 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation because by Him everything was created. In Him and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and by Him all things hold together. Guys, may, as your pastor, I care about you. That's why I say some of this stuff. Be careful of Jehovah Witnesses. Because they will take this passage where it talks about the firstborn. Look, look if you will, in verse number 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Jehovah Witnesses primarily would take this particular passage of Scripture and they would teach that Jesus was the first created being. And they would pull that doctrine out of the verbiage that Jesus is the firstborn. Now that term firstborn does not refer to time. It refers to a place. It refers to a status. It refers to an importance of rank. It refers to a supreme being. What it's talking about is how Jesus, God's Son, was involved in all of creation. Christ is the Creator. His preeminence is seen in all of creation. He existed before creation in verse number 15. He created all things in verse number 16. Jesus 
was involved in creating all things. It's no wonder the winds and the waves obeyed when he stood on the bow of the ship and said, peace be still. It's no wonder that disease had to flee when he took a blind man and spit in the ground and put some mud on his eyes and he became whole where he could see. It's no Jesus, no reason that, or that's the reason that a, a lame man that was laying, that Jesus came by and said, take up your bed and walk and he was healed. Why? Because he has authority over all creation. It's no reason to believe, or the reason that we can believe now that is because Jesus looked at a tomb where Lazarus was dead and was buried and Martha and Mary were weeping and crying and they were scolding Jesus because he was late. They had forgotten about the preeminent of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, how he is over all of creation and he spoke and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth in his grave clothes and saying, loose me out of these things. Why did he say Lazarus? Because if he hadn't said Lazarus, if he had just said, come forth, every single individual that had ever died from beginning of mankind to that day would have burst out of the tombs that day. Why? Because Christ is preeminent over creation. Hello? He created it. Oh, there's a whole sermon in that, but I got to go. All things exist for him, he holds all things together. Some of you guys, gals, that are going through your science classes will sit there and you'll hear an educated man that was educated by man that has umpteen, so many degrees behind his name, he looks like a thermometer. You'll get that tomorrow. He'll sit there and tell you that about mass and molecules and protons and neutrons. And, he's, and mankind's got it all, all of matter scientifically figured out. One student sitting in class and the teacher was intellectually and eloquently talking about mass and matter and protons and neutrons and chemistry and so forth and so on. And they got to talking about matter. And the teacher was talking about how matter, when it's really broken down, is mostly just air, space. Not a whole lot really there. And the student asked the question, said, who holds all the matter together? Because he had broken down how everything was held together, how everything worked, and it got down to the matter. And the student said, who holds the matter together the teacher looked at the student said I really don't know the student said I know the person that holds all the matter together is the Lord Jesus Christ himself look in your Bibles look in Colossians it says that not only did he create all things not only were they created for him and by him and they exist because of him but the Bible says that he is holding all of that together hello Man, is that not good? I was watching Fox News the other morning. And there was a special on Fox News. You guys okay? Stay with me. There was a special on Fox News the other morning. And, and, and I forget what planet it was, but they were showing how this planet was hit by this big... Did everybody see that? Did you see that special on Fox News? This huge planet. I forget which one it was. I, I really, I kind of blew it off because I knew what Scripture said, so I didn't pay much attention to it. But, but they were worried and they're concerned. They brought in all these scientists and all these different people to talk about can planet Earth be hit by something like this and be destroyed because they put planet Earth next to this huge planet that was out there. Somebody help me out. Maybe you know what it is. I can't remember what it was. This huge planet and planet Earth like this. And they showed this spot on this huge planet. And if it would have hit planet Earth, it would have wiped us out. And they were all scared. They were all worried. They were all concerned. And I just chuckled and kept brushing my teeth. It didn't bother me whatsoever. Because I know that my Jesus is preeminent. And I know that He created all things. And I know that He holds it all together. And He is taking care of us. Hello? Whew, that's almost enough to make an Episcopalian shout just a little bit. Guys, I'm talking about the preeminence of Christ. It's a wonderful doctrine. A wonderful doctrine. Oh, I wish I had more time to preach on it, but I don't.
Let me give you the third thing that Christ is the head of the church. Not only is he preeminent in salvation, not only is he preeminent in creation, but he's also preeminent, and just to keep with my acronyms and things, or my, 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 um, my words that I wanted to say, that he is uh, preeminent in denomination. <laughs> you know, salvation, creation, denomination, but uh, I didn't fit, really, doctrinally. But he is preeminent because he's the head of the church. And verse number 18 talks about Jesus being the head of the church. Look, if you will, in verse 18. He also is the head of the body. Who's the body? The church. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. Guys, no one denomination, no one church can ever claim to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a universal church made up in believers, in Jesus Christ, in many different denominations, in many different movements. That's the universal church, universal church that he's the head of. But we have responsibility by the authority of God's word to be actively involved in ministering and serving and living out our life and giving of our time and our talents and our effort and our energy in the local church. And you want me to tell you who the head of the local church is? Jesus. Not only is he head of the universal church, but we are a small part of the body of Christ and we help make up the universal body of Christ in the local assembly of Victory Church. We're part of that body and Jesus is the head of what we do. He is the leader. And no man has the authority or the right to step in to that role. I worked out an entire message on Jesus, the head of the church. But let me give you one little nugget. Now, I respect a lot of the things that the Pope stands for. I respect a lot of, a lot of his values, but I do not look to him for my salvation nor do I look to him as the leader of my religious life. I look to one man. You see, because not only is Christ Jesus our Savior, he is also our high priest. And he's the one, Scripture says, that is mediating between you and a holy God, between me and a holy God. In First Timothy, it says there's one man that mediates between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He is the head of the church. And let me give you the last argument that Paul said, and we're going to move on, verses 19 through 20. Talk about the preeminence of Christ. It says that, it teaches that he is the beloved of the Father. He is the beloved of the Father. Many times in Scripture, it says something to the effect, look at verse number 19, for God was pleased to have all his full, or to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus was the beloved of the Father. Many times throughout Scripture, God, a voice, would come out of heaven and say, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. And the Scripture teaches us, and this is something that had to throw the false teachers for a loop in Paul's day in Colossae, when he said this, All of the fullness of God dwells in Him. All of the authority, all of the power... All of the knowledge, it all dwells in Him. Why? Because He is the beloved of the Father. What does all this mean? Whenever we talk about the preeminence, and I'm going to try to come to a close here. I am hovering right now, and I'm looking for a place to land this thing. And just clo- I'm whittling, I'm, I'm cutting away, I'm cutting away, I'm cutting away. What does all this mean? As we talk about the preeminence of Christ, what does it mean? Here's two things I want to drive home and two things you can take away with you and two things that will help you to live tomorrow under the preeminent crust and Him being Lord of your life. Two things you can expect. Number one, He is sufficient. He is sufficient for all your needs. Not only is He sufficient, but He's also supreme. Those are two things I want you to take away from this message. That Jesus is sufficient 
and that He is supreme. He is preeminent in everything. He's sufficient and supreme in your life. He's sufficient and and supreme in your family. He's sufficient and supreme in your career. He's sufficient and supreme in our government. He's sufficient and and supreme in America. He's sufficient and supreme as far as the world is concerned. Listen, He's all we need. He is sufficient. And He is supreme. And whenever you think about that, you start thinking about some of the riches that we have in Christ. And let me tell you just a few that you possess because you know Him as your Lord and your Savior. For in Him we possess, listen, a love that will never be phantom. A love that can never die. A righteousness that can never be tarnished. A peace that can never be understood. A rest that can never be disturbed. A joy that can never be diminished. A grace that can never be comprehended. A hope that can never be disappointed. A glory that can never be clouded. A lot that can never be darkened. A purity that can never be defiled. A beauty that can never be marred. A wisdom that can never be baffled. That's some of the riches that we have. Why? Because He is sufficient and He is supreme. The sufficiency of Christ. You see, I don't care a rabbit's foot in my pocket. I'm not afraid to walk under a ladder. And it doesn't bother me a bit when a mirror breaks. And not because I look at it, because I drop it. Those things don't bother me. I'm not superstitious one iota. Why? Because I live my life with Jesus as the preeminent Lord and Savior of my life. He is all I need. I don't need a rabbit's foot. Matter of fact, I intentionally, if I'm on a job site or wherever I am, they're building something, they have ladders, I intentionally, I go for walking under the ladder. That's, that's where I want to go. I, I intentionally walk under it. Why? Because I want to look the world in the eye and say, listen, I'm not driven, motivated by superstition. There is a preeminent Lord that's King and Lord of my life, and He is sufficient, and He is supreme. Hello? <laughs> Billy Sunday, can I share this with you real quick? Billy Sunday, in his sermon, he preached, the title of it was called Wonderful. He communicated the sufficiency of Christ. And let me quote what Billy Sunday said. He said, Christ for sickness and Christ for health. Christ for poverty and Christ for wealth. Christ for joy and Christ for sorrow. Christ today and Christ tomorrow. Christ my life and Christ my lot. Christ my morning, noon, and night. Christ when all the world or all around gives way. Christ my everlasting stay. Christ my rest. Christ my food. Christ above my highest good. Christ my well-beloved friend. Christ my pleasure without end. Christ my Savior. Christ my Lord. Christ my portion. Christ my God. Christ my shepherd. I his sheep. Christ himself my soul to keep. Christ my leader. Christ my peace. Christ has bought my soul's release. Christ my righteous, my righteousness divine. Christ for me for he is mine. Christ my wisdom, Christ my meat, Christ restores my wandering feet. Christ my advocate and high priest, Christ who never forgets the least. Christ my teacher, Christ my God, Christ my rock, in Christ I hide. Christ the ever-living bread, Christ his precious blood has shed. Christ has brought me now to God, Christ the everlasting word. Christ my master, Christ my head, Christ who for my sins has bled. Christ my glory, Christ my crown. Christ the plant of great renown. Christ my comforter on high. Christ my hope draws ever nigh. Guys, listen. He is sufficient for all of your needs. And He is supreme. Let me ask you a question. Will you acknowledge the supremacy of Christ? Will you acknowledge the preeminence of Christ? Notice I did not say, will you make Him preeminent? Because He already is. I did not ask you, will you make him supreme? Because he already is. I ask you, will you acknowledge it? And if so, will you allow it to impact your life on a daily basis? It'll change who you are. It'll change how you live. It'll change how you act. It'll change how you react. It'll change what you think about. It'll change every decision you make when you live under the banner of the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. I wonder as every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And I realize I've been a little lengthy today, but I really didn't know what to cut out of this message. And so I just try to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit this morning. The preeminence of Christ. Have you acknowledged that? Have you acknowledged that? 
As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, and before we have a song of invitation here, I want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, have you come to the place in your life where you've realized that you've sinned and you need a Savior? If so, then I would, I would like to encourage you, look to Jesus. Because He loves you so much that He died on the cross for your sins. And the Bible teaches that He was buried and He rose again the third day. And if you just confess your sins and believe in Him, the Bible says you too can have eternal life. And I wonder this morning, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, maybe there's someone here that just needs to accept Christ as their Savior this morning. If that's you, will you just whisper a prayer, something like this, just from your heart to the heart of God? Will you just say, Dear God, I realize that I've sinned. And I realize that I am in need of a Savior. And God, right now, I ask you to come into my heart and into my life. I believe that you love me. You died for me. I repent of my sins and ask you to forgive me. Be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. If you're here this morning, maybe you've already accepted Christ as your Savior. As we still have our heads bowed, eyes closed. This is for the believer now. And you're a believer in Christ. And you've already accepted Christ as your Savior. But maybe the Holy Spirit of God is fingered around in your heart this morning. And he's touched in some areas in your life where you have not allowed him to be preeminent, where you have not allowed him to be supreme. Guys, he already is, and he always will be. The hindrance comes, and the decision comes, will we allow him to have preeminence? Maybe there are some Christians here that need to rededicate and recommit their life to Christ today. If so, maybe just let me help you pray. Just pray something like this. Say, God... I realize, God, I realize that, that you haven't been preeminent in my life. That I've put in self or a career or finances or stuff in this world above you in a particular area in my life. And today, I pray you'd forgive me of that and help me to live a life where you are preeminent in my life. Forgive me. Restore my fellowship with you. And I ask you to be supreme in my life. In Jesus' name.